Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another BP Movie Journal. This is going to be a quick one. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a bad mood. We're running late. we got a guest coming. I'm not feeling well. You're not feeling well. This is... We're doing this episode under, under duress. Yeah. So I guess I'm sorry so, is yeah. what we're going to uh, lead with. But in case you don't know, I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, no last names on the movie, jur- movie journal. That's a decision we made last week. Yeah, we try to keep things informal. How many, uh, how many things do you have to talk about this week? I have, uh, well, four new things. Wow. Wait, hang on. Is that true? Three new things, you one old thing, down. and a TV show. All right. Well, um, I think we got about the same amount. I'll go okay. first. Um, I saw a movie, a documentary, directed by uh, Boyhood's dad, mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke. It's called Seymour, an introduction. Yeah. And it is delightful. All right. It's about this guy named Seymour Bernstein or Bernstein. I can't remember. Um, who is a, uh, I guess, very well-known <coughs> pianist, but who's mostly now a piano teacher and something of a guru, I guess, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, who lives in New York city. And he like stopped playing concerts you know, he was very well renowned, always got good reviews, but he stopped doing concerts or recitals or whatever you call it because it's not a recital. Mm-hmm. You're not reciting the piano, right? I've, I've, heard a name piano, for I've heard of like for kids, like piano recitals. I've heard that. Okay. I guess that is a recital. Whatever it is. He stopped giving them when he was about 50 something. He's about 80 something in the movie. Um, and he's still just, he's just like, the movie's only about 85 minutes long and I could spend all day with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I sort of did spend the movie with him because he sat two rows ahead of me. Um, but the the wife and I uh, decided not to stay for the Q&A because uh, my wife was like, I enjoyed that too much to ruin it by sitting through a Q&A. <laughs> it's, it's weird. I mean, some people love Q's and A's. Um, I can't stand it. I hate when, like, even when I was a kid and I was watching and my family and I were watching Letterman, if ever he had a bit that required going into the audience, I was like, I'm not paying to see them. Now, recognize, I recognize I'm not paying to see you either, but you are getting paid quite handsomely yeah. because you're very talented. The last thing I want is for these people to ugh, try to be like, try to seem like they're in, the, in on the bit or something like that. No, thank you. Um, yeah, and there was, uh, I read about a Q&A at South by Southwest where someone stood up and said how great they thought Will Arnett was in the movie. But uh, Will Arnett was not in the movie. Will Forte was. Oh, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah, They're like that sounds like. Can you believe that it happened? But I, something like that happens all the yeah. time. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, Q and A sessions are a big, uh, are just a big example of nobody wins. Yeah, <laughs> the the questioner didn't win. Will Forte didn't win, and nobody listening won. Um, anyway, so that's, that Seymour an introduction. I can't, I don't really want to spend too much time talking about it. Uh, but I would definitely recommend checking it out. This guy seems like, I mean, he is like a spiritualist in a way and like, uh, in a way that would normally make me roll my eyes, but mm. he's so, he's so down to earth and just casual about it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but in most of his thing is about performers and artists and stuff. And he, uh, and a lot of his big, um, one of his big sort of philosophies is that most people who perform uh, aren't nervous enough. People should be more nervous before they go on stage, before they do something. Uh, yeah. The, the, and uh, Ethan Hawke, Ethan Hawke does a good job of not putting himself in the movie too much, but he yeah. is an actor and he can't, 
he can't resist. Right. But he frames them or like punctuates the movie with a series of conversations with a different people. Some of them his students, some of his former students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are certain <coughs> conversations that he keeps returning to over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And his is one of them. So that's how he's in the movie. It's still a little more than I would have liked, uh, yeah. but he, he he addresses that idea of uh, being more nervous, that having yeah. bouts of stage fright, and Seymour mm-hmm. sort of telling him that's okay. What do you have? Uh, so a movie that I saw this week was, I forget the name of the director, uh, I saw Run All Night with Liam Neeson and Ed Harris. Uh, yeah. You guys went together? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like your thing. Um, and uh, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen any of the Taken films, but, uh, I hear that the first one's okay. And then they just get more and more ridiculous. And then everybody knows what Liam Neeson's career has been, um, for the last few years. And I don't mean to say that in a negative way, but it's just odd that as he got older, he got more into action. That's, is very strange. And so a lot of people say he's like, oh, he's kind of like the modern Charles Bronson. Uh, but I saw A Walk Among the Tombstones, which I think is a yeah, we about good it. movie, not great. But he's really good in it. And I think he's great in Run All Night, especially just, you know, it's kind of the standard thing, like a guy who used to be a, a hitman or a mob enforcer and drove off his family and is drunk most of the time and is an embarrassment. Like, he's genuinely a pretty, just a bad guy. Not a guy that you're in, that you like. I mean, he's... He's really like lascivious and stuff and, and just and is drunk around children and that sort of so it's it's really um sorry, I should specify that he gets he gets brought into a into a Christmas party um to be uh, Santa Claus and he's just very, very drunk. And of course the imagery is you know, super obvious, but he sells it and makes it this very sad, uncomfortable thing. I think he's really good and I think Ed Harris is great. Um you know, what I like about it is that it I'll say this, it feels a whole lot like Road to Perdition as far as the story, um, right down to the relationship that Ed Harris and, and Liam Neeson have and what needs to happen for any good thing to, to occur. Um, and so, uh, but there are, little, there are little directorial flares. Like you and I, when we saw, we didn't see it together, but when we talk about Panic Room, the thing that we t- dislike is just the weird fluid camera stuff like it's going Where through it goes through like the, the like the handle, handle of the coffee, of the coffee yeah pot? it's like yeah. It go, if it goes through like the pe- like the the peephole of a of a of a door okay that's one thing because this is a film about inva- home invasion right. about getting in no matter how you, how that coffee handle thing makes no sense at all yeah it, you do it because it's uh, just to show off because you can yeah and this has a couple things where uh where the camera in a film that actually feels very down to earth and dour every once in a while as a transition from one scene to another, like the camera will just like quickly zoom up above the city of New York and then quickly find a different, a different street where the characters are going to be and just winds up being distracting, especially from a movie that really has a lot going on. I liked it quite a bit. Um, the director, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, has worked with Liam Neeson on nonstop and unknown. And I heard nonstop was really good. Um, I didn't see it. Uh, the only one of his films I've seen was House of Wax from 2005, which I remember chiefly for the ad campaign. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. See, see Paris Die? Yeah. Which I like. Like, I'm a punk rock guy. I like to think I can take a lot. Yeah. You know, I, I, can, I can let stuff roll off my back and not be offended. 
that like it made me and continues to make me so sad that that was a thing. Yeah, and I'm sure that wasn't his idea to market. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, I don't blame him. But um, that's still like it really upsets me, and I'm sure it upset her. Like I don't think she signed on to the movie. Paris Hilton, for those who maybe are too young because this movie's ten years old now. Yeah, um, that was ten years ago. Uh, the Paris Hilton was in the movie. She gets killed. I think she gets impaled through the head with a pipe. I didn't see it. Um, I think it's isn't like it that. fairly early in the film. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember if she dies before or after the black guy. Yeah, <laughs> because that's usually a mark of that's pretty early in the film yeah. when the black guy dies in most horror movies, right? Um, but yeah, the there was an ad campaign, I guess approved by the studio, right? That yeah. was like the fun of seeing this movie is this reality TV star is going to get killed and you get to see it. And it that's, feels like they would need to run that by her, right? I don't know that they would. I guess not. It seems like there should be some kind of legal action uh, that she could take when they're saying, hey, don't we all just want to see this woman die? Yeah, I think that on the basis of what? Like hurt feelings? Uh, on the basis of, I don't know, there's got to be something where like putting ideas into people's heads and stuff like that. If you were to do that with a politician. I still don't think it would be against the law. I guess not. I don't know. Um, yeah, but that's uh, that's what I that's what I made depraved I, indifference. I, I looked up the director, and that's like the first thing I okay thought of. All right, uh, I'll move but on. I would I would recommend Run All Night. By the way, okay, I would not recommend House of Wax. There are, there's some cool production design in House of Wax. You know, because there's that's what I've heard. You know, it's literally everything's made of wax, and there's a big like fiery finale. So there's yeah. like like entire houses melting, and like they really like it's crazy. Made, it's it's kind of cool looking. Um, I watched, had to set aside three hours to do it. And that's something we'll talk about. I watched, uh, George Cukor's A Star is Born. Oh, all right. Which was, which is the 1954 version starring Judy Garland and James Mason. It's, mm-hmm. um, undoubtedly the most famous of the three A Star is Borns. Yeah. Um, but somehow it was the only one I hadn't seen. I, I, I came, to, I came at the, 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 I don't know what you call it. The, the property all backwards. Cause yeah. I saw the. Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson one first, yeah. which is just a just a mopey drag. I'm sure that movie. Um, and then I saw the Jenna Gaynor, Frederick March one, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw this one, which uh, has a lot of great things about it. Fantastic to look at. Um, the performances, the both the lead performances, uh, are are out of this world. But um, I still felt like it was, like I said, it's three hours. It's an hour longer. Yeah. It's over. Yeah, it's I guess just over an hour longer than the Jenna Gaynor, Frederick March one, and a lot of that one. A lot of that is because a star's this version is a musical. Yeah, um, not musical like you think of, like people just breaking into song. It's one of those musicals where everything because she plays a musical actress, right. like, like Nashville. Uh, I guess sort of like that. Yeah, there's a lot of reason for there to be songs a lot, mm-hmm. but there's like there's a part where they go to one of her, one of her premieres. Like her first big premiere, and then there's literally not exaggerating. Fifteen minutes of the movie is just the movie they're watching, which is just a fifteen minute long musical number. Uh, and so, that like, se- that sounds kind of neat to me, but I'm sure it'd get tiresome. It does feel, and like, and it's they're well done too. But I felt like I kept getting pulled out of the out of the movie a little bit when that. Like, I mean, there's a different. There's one musical number that's great where he's. I don't know if you know the story, but he, you know, he's yeah, yeah. like an older. He, he's sort of washed up like because of his drinking and uh, his drinking has affected his acting and don't want to hire him anymore so they're married and she's like the up-and-coming star mm. while he's 
um, fading. And uh, so he's not working. He's home all day, you know, playing solitaire and learning to cook and do stuff like that. And um, and she comes home from a long day at work <coughs> and um, she has the practice record of the music musical number they're working on. And so she puts it on and there's a long her doing for him doing the song and disc- and then in between singing lines describing like, OK, here's where a chorus comes rising out of the floor and like running all over their their home and doing the song while describing the production design that you would that see. Was a, that's a really cool yeah. sequence. Um but uh, uh, overall, I thought it was really good. Definitely worth watching if you have three hours. Uh, I should say for those the the weird thing is there's like half an hour of this movie went missing at one point because there were all these different versions. Hmm. It was like a roadshow version. It got cut down um, after the roadshow or whatever to two and a half hours. And they found most of the three the the half hour. And I guess they found all of the audio for the half hour. But there are certain segments that are just production stills hmm. with. Audio. audio. Yeah. yeah. So you can, you can figure out what the story is, but, um, anyway, uh, but, and it totally makes sense how they, when you see like, oh yeah, that's how they could cut this whole segment out. You could see mm-hmm. how, like, well, like one of those mad magazine back page folders, you could, I could see how this yeah. could connect to this 20 minutes later, yeah. uh, with all that missing. Um, anyway, uh, I still think I'd prefer the Janet Gaynor, Frederick March one, hmm. but you know, uh, whose career I'm, I'm fast. And I know we don't have a lot of time for this, but I'm fascinated at the career of James Mason. Uh-huh. Because when you think of, like, when you're our age, you think of probably 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, maybe The Verdict, and that might be it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but he had a career that was a little strange in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he was in, like, just the the type of actor he was, I think of him as, like, an older uh, gentleman. But when you think of stuff like Lolita, and then in this, where he's you know, this washed up drunk and, um, yeah. and, and has been, and is kind of sad and, and is, I don't know. It's just, it sounds interesting. It's, I think there's Apparently, a lot, there's a lot more to his career than I think we remember. I don't know how much there is to this cause it's just like trivia you pick up on the internet, but I was reading about the movie afterwards and apparently a lot of big name actors turned down the role because mm. they didn't want to. They didn't want to be seen that way, I guess. Yeah, uh, and I guess know. he doesn't have a problem with it, which yeah. I think is kind of awesome. Um, okay, uh, did you have anything more to say about Was that a film you'd recommend? Uh, yeah, but I, uh, again, I know it's the most famous, but I would recommend the Janet Gaynor Frederick okay. March one more. And I would recommend Steering Clear of the uh, Barbara Streisand Chris Christopherson one. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about that. I watched this like the day before there was an announcement that uh, – Bradley Cooper like is seeking to perhaps direct another version. Ugh. It's about time, right? That there's yeah. another version. Yeah. Like, I, I we're, it's, we're, it's over. We're overdue at yeah, this point. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? It's again, we, we run up against this thought, this thing that I have that I shouldn't, but it's just like, Hey, Bradley Cooper wants to direct. It's like, uh, okay, that's fine. Enjoy. I, I like him. I think he's I try, a great I, actor. Uh, and I'm sure he'd be a perfectly serviceable director. Uh, I'm just trying to think the last time that, like, I guess Charles Lawton directed something that I thought was pretty great. Um, Mel Gibson. We will. That's Mel a, Gibson. I know that's a Pandora's box, and we've talked about it at length before. But I think he's a pretty great director. He's made, well, he's yeah. made some great movies. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've watched Braveheart. I don't know if it holds up. But Apocalypto is a masterpiece. It holds up in the way Apocalypto holds up. I'll okay. say that. 
uh, really creating a sense of, of time and space. Okay, we need to move on. Sorry. By the way, um, Bradley Cooper is hoping to cast Beyonce in the lead of A Star Is Born. Which would, he, would he play the other lead? Uh, I don't know. I hadn't even seen thought about that. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, or maybe, but, do you think he's a little too young? That's Yeah, because that, uh, he is supposed to be older um, yeah. and more established. But uh, I don't know how, I don't know what my opinion of Beyonce as an actress is. I've seen... Um, the third Austin Powers movie. I think that's the thing I've seen her in. Yeah, I didn't see Dreamgirls. I didn't she see Dreamgirls. I know she was in something else. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But I can't remember what else it was. Um, so, okay, I saw It Follows. Okay. And... Uh, I mean, given our discussion last week, It Follows that you would see that. What? Right? We're done, right? Um, <laughs> with, yeah. with the whole enterprise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This, that was the end of Battleship yeah. Pretension. Well done, David. We Worth stumbled it. into it. <laughs> um, the uh, Yeah, I thought it was pretty great. I didn't love it, but there are a lot of things I loved about it. Um, I think the ending kind of... I wouldn't say it falls apart, but... Uh, you know, it's one of those things where there's a fine line when you have main characters who are just kind of grasping at straws about how they deal with this and their solution seems kind of half-assed and like, well, they don't like, I don't know if I have much faith in their solution here. Um, you never quite know if it's like, okay, do I feel this way because the director wants me to feel this way about these characters or do I feel this way because this was the best the director could do? Like he couldn't think of any other way to end his film. Um, Hmm. and, uh, and I don't know. Um, and so it, it feels almost like he – It oh, this sounds terrible. It feels like he went ambiguous with it because he didn't really know what else to do. Um, do you know what I mean? Well, Can I didn't I see that? the movie. So I want now I want to see the movie and hope that I disagree with you so we can duke it out. Sure, absolutely. Because a lot um, of people I've, – I've, I've, I've read people specifically name the ending as something they liked about the movie. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of good things about the ending, um, but I don't know. It's to me, it seems like a little. Uh, here's a term I don't use very often, but I think I will. Seems a little slapdash. Okay. Um, but it's still uh, the atmosphere is amazing. What he does with what he manages to do with the camera and really put you in the position of one of these uh, victims. Uh, the music is, of course, wonderful. Um, afterwards. Uh, uh, Jen and I had a long conversation about like what is happening with horror movies right now because she saw the guest uh-huh. and then she saw um, your next and she saw this and she just seems like and she just said it feels like like we're going backwards a little bit to like especially to the 80s not back she oh I, in her terms she like she just mean chronologically way. yeah yeah and I just said, I feel like, like well, we're in like <clears throat> What might be a new golden age of horror. Yeah, I think, yeah, she wasn't saying it as a negative. She just was saying, like, this seems to be an interesting trend. And and I agree. And and she said, why is this, like, why are the 80s coming about now? And I said, because you had people who are growing up in the 80s now making movies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, and I think it's, I think it pays off very well. And I think the, the, the creepiness factor of it follows... Um, is very effectively done. This felt a lot like the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, okay. And uh, not the most glowing endorsement to me, but I think the original is pretty solid. I'd have to watch it. Again. I remember liking it, but I was pretty young. There's specifically specifically an aspect of kids that are they're very much kids. They're 17, 18. Like mm. they're making do and thinking like, 
all right, uh, I guess let's just stick together and do our best. <laughs> like, uh, because they don't really know, uh, they don't really know what they're dealing with and they're trying to make do. Like, I feel like in a lot of horror movies, you get a protagonist who becomes probably more capable than they conceivably would be. This one, it really seems, and I, to me, I think one of the great things about horror movies is you can't help but think, well, what would I do in this right, situation? Sure. And I like it when it makes it clear, well, you would do your best, but that probably wouldn't be good enough. And that's what this film made me feel. It's, it's very good. I highly recommend it. And again, the ending isn't terrible or anything like that. And it's not like it's a deal breaker. It's just one. It just felt, it just didn't feel so much of the film is, is uh, very, not unlike the, the creature itself, the it of the, of the title. Uh, there's a nice deliberate quality to it. And then at the end, it just kind of goes a little bit off the rails for me. All right. Um, I watched a recent Criterion release that I, I I almost should have just brought it to lend to you because you would love it so much, okay. called Ride the Pink Horse. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's a noir film from 1940, <coughs> 1947. It takes place in a New Mexico border town, um, which means there are... There are sections in the movie that are in Spanish. Like oh. the the main characters, except for there's a. I mean, this is kind of yeah. The main character, the antagonist, the protagonist and antagonist are white, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, white Americans. Um, but then there are the like I guess love interest, although she's too young, um, and it doesn't actually. Love interest is the wrong word because it doesn't turn into a romance. Mm-hmm. But um, she's the character is Mexican, <laughs> the actress is not. Okay. Um, but then there, but then there, you know, there's a lot. There's still a large, a larger representation of Spanish-speaking casts mm-hmm. cast than than I expect from, from an American movie from 1947. And that gave it a great sense of yeah of flavor. Where like uh, at the beginning, I was literally unsure until you see a sign at the bus station that says. New Mexico, I was like, I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be in America or yeah. in, in Mexico. Uh, and I really, so I really liked that, that, uh, sense of it. Um, and I also like, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't want to give away too much about it, but, um, uh, the, the characters, it's, the act, it's directed by the lead actor, Robert Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characterization of him and what you find <coughs> out, about him well you know nothing changes about him in the first half or so of the movie but you find out what his motives are Mm -hmm. you you know through a certain through omission of certain information you've come to think like oh he's here for this reason and then something else that was there all along gets revealed and you realize is maybe uh you know he's not he's not the like standard noir like every man who gets like dragged down and gets, you know, loses more morals as he goes. is like, Oh, he was kind of a shady character to begin with. And I didn't realize that. Yeah. I just made assumptions about him being noble. Um, and so I, I I like that, that, uh, that take on it. Uh, I don't want to say, again, I don't want to say too much, but, um, it's the, the movie looks great on Blu-ray and is a, a delight to watch. All right. Um, next for me, I saw, huh, for more than one lesson purposes, Josh and I went and saw Do You Believe from the writers of God's Not Dead, and it made uh, some money. We're not 
by the way, like we're not going to see every big, every Christian movie. I almost said big. That doesn't apply. Um, we're not uh, we're not going to see every Christian movie that's out there, and we certainly won't do every one on the show. But um, but all the higher profile, a good portion of the higher profile ones, we might talk about, especially when you have a cast that includes somebody like Mira Sorvino and Delroy Lindo oh. and Sean Astin. Like it's not a bad cast. Uh, so I was curious and, uh, and it's, and it, it not unlike God's not dead, but even more so than that, it's very much the kind of movie that I enjoy a, you know, uh, an ensemble piece, you know, like Nashville, like, uh, shortcuts, even like Magnolia or Cra- even crash. I think it probably, I wouldn't be surprised if the director or the writers saw crash right. and thought, Oh, let's do that. Uh, and let's try to get that tone right too, um, because it, it definitely feels like that. Um, I'll Quote say unquote, right. Yeah. 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 I guess what I mean is let's, let's try it. They said, let's try to nail that tone. Um, what I will say is that, uh, the movie's not terrible and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to say too much so that, you know, cause Hey, if you want to go and listen to the episode of more than one lesson, um, Oh, which isn't available when you hear this, but it will be available in the next couple of days. Um, sit tight. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, you know, in the meantime, go and uh, buy our bonus episode about dogma. It's only two dollars and fifty cents. Gotta um, do that. But uh, the acting is pretty solid all around. It's so interesting to watch these movies um, slowly but surely get better on a technical and artistic level. Very slowly. Don't get me wrong. Um, this one, it shot a lot better. The camera is much more fluid. Um, and the acting is not uniformly great, but pretty solid all the way through. Um, I believed the, uh, you know, I believed the emotions, which is, is at the very base what uh, what an actor should do. But you had, and of course, all the actors are people that have, you know, that are probably a bit past their prime. Um, so you get stuff like, you know, Sybil Shepherd and Lee Majors and stuff like that. But you remember, like, oh yeah, they are actors. And just because people don't cast them anymore doesn't mean they stopped being actors. And so the, the performances aren't bad. Um, I'd probably give the movie a C- minus if I'm feeling generous, D+, plus if I'm not. Um, you know, and compared to That's stuff That's a thin like, line between generous and not generous for you. It is, yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you say C, uh, suddenly people are like, wait, what? If you say D... People are like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> um, and so uh, it certainly is not a movie that I'd recommend because when it ultimately with these movies, it always comes down to the script, and the script is mostly terrible. Um, and it's just it's just so frustrating. I just feel like because if they, even with the story, if they had given the script over to a, an experienced uh, script consultant and he just cut out the bits that didn't work or said, Hey, you, you need to rewrite this and all that. Uh, it could be effective, but that's not what they do. And it winds up just being laughable and that sort of thing. But, but it wasn't as nightmarish an experience as saving Christmas was. Okay. Nothing could be, <laughs> um, moving on now, back when we did our this is years ago now when we did our controversial episode about uh, journeyman directors yeah i don't remember if Boy, we talked and about, we did not expect that to be controversial yeah. by the way i don't remember if we talked about rob reiner hmm. but i watched uh, also new to blu-ray um from shout factory uh rob reiner's 1985 the sure thing starring john cusack and daphne zuniga zuniga, zuniga yeah zuniga 
I'm not sure. From Spaceballs? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then um, Anthony Edwards from Top Gun and ER. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and uh, the film debut of Nicolette Sheridan uh, in, a, in a small role. But she's, she's, she's exactly right for the role. Mm. She's the sure thing of the title. Um, and it's a, a, you know, I felt watching this early John Cusack movie, I feel like, oh, when people talk about, when people compare Miles Teller to young John Cusack, they're right. Neither one of them are quite fully formed yet as, yeah. as actors. Yeah. You can see them trying a little too hard uh, in, in every case. And so I, I kind of had some problems with John Cusack's uh, bigger moments, um, which I, I don't think he uh, – it would have been better if he had undersold them a little bit. But Rob Reiner, it's essentially a, a you know a 1980s teenager or college student, I guess. They're still teenagers. They're like 19 or whatever. Um take on it happened one night where they um are traveling from their unnamed ivy league east you know um new england college to los angeles they're both visiting she's visiting her long distance boyfriend he's visiting this girl played by nicolette sheridan that uh anthony edwards has assured him will have sex with him. She's the short thing. Right. Um, and they get a ride from some people at a college who <laughs> played by, um, Tim Robbins and, um, uh, Lisa Jane Persky. Is that her name? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that. It's something like that. Uh, is in the, it's a very funny, small role. They end up annoying one another so much that, um, they get ditched on the side of the road and have to make their way, to yeah. Los Angeles together. That Hitch, sounds fun. Hitchhiking. And so, yeah, it is. But again, I don't think it really <coughs> kind brings. Kind of a buddy movie there. Yeah, it doesn't bring a lot of stuff new. Well, it's, I mean, spoiler alert, it turns into a romance. What? They're not just friends. I mean, they're just friends at the beginning. No, actually, you'll never get that. You never would have guessed this. Okay. They actually don't like each other very much at the beginning at all. But when they meet, it's pretty cute. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um,. Anyway, it doesn't really bring much new to the genre, but uh, coming back to what, how I started this, Rob Reiner is a journeyman director. He's not he's not phoning anything in. I think that's a big part of what, not to get back into what it takes to be a journeyman, but to take uh, what seems like a pretty by-the-numbers genre fair and to take it all seriously yeah. and to treat it all with respect. I think that's that's what he does, and it's uh, definitely a decent movie. Okay, um, so... The last movie that I saw in the theater is one that has been around for um, 61 years. Um, uh, I surprised Jen because this is one of her favorite movies. And so I surprised her with a, a little date night and we went and saw Rear Window. Oh, cool. Which was playing at a, at a, an AMC theater. And um, Why was Rear Window playing at an AMC theater? I have theater? no idea. But whatever. I didn't care. Um, and it was uh, – and I'd never seen it on Don't the big screen before. Don't in the mouth, right? Exactly. Yeah. Don't – you know. <laughs> Ours is but to do and die, David. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so, our guest is here, so we need to we need to hurry up. So, I'll, you know, I don't have anything remarkably new to say about Rear Window, except, you know, when you watch movies over and over again, and certainly if you watch a movie on the big screen for the first time, there are things that you might notice more. Um, one thing I noticed is how wonderful Grace Kelly is. I'm a big fan of hers at this point, um, and she's a delight. Um, and she can go toe to toe with Jimmy Stewart and come out uh, his equal. The other thing that I got more this time than any other time I've seen it is that Raymond Burr, 
he looks I mean, just the way they design the, the way the character is designed to look, you know, he's got like the white hair and a specific type and, he, and glasses and he just looks a very specific way. And he looks well, he looks suspicious when we finally see him or rather hear him. There's a real sadness there. There's a real almost pathetic quality where he's asking, what do you want? And he says, do you want money? I don't have any money. And he sounds exasperated. And when you see the situation with his, with his wife, uh, whom he kills, uh, she's not merely an, uh, an invalid, but she's also just kind of dismissive and abusive of him. And I'm, sh- and meanwhile, he has, a, a I think he's got a girlfriend, uh, elsewhere. I don't remember exactly, but, um, yeah, I think that's what it is. Uh, I had to step outside the theater to make a complaint uh, about how loud the theater next door was. Because Rear Window is a quiet film. What was showing next door? Run All Night, strangely ah. enough. And uh, so, and actually, the, the employees, thankfully, came along and assured me I was not crazy because they were like, whoa, yes, that is way too loud. And so they turned it down and turned ours up and everything was great. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so I missed some parts. Anyway, but Raymond Burr's character, he really does obviously like – it's wrong to murder someone and you shouldn't do that. And he's wrong for doing that. And he's threatening and all of that. But he really does feel like a guy who's kind of backed into a corner and feels like he doesn't know any other option here. And so what I like is that even then we have an idea because the film's all about like making judgments on people based on, uh, your perception of them, even though you don't totally know their story. And we see him purely as a villain. And then the minute we actually hear him, I start to view him in a, in a maybe not a more sympathetic way, but at least a more human way. And I think even that goes to – and that I think – lately I've been thinking a lot about uh, an episode that you and I did uh, in which we talked primarily about Bradley Cooper in American Hustle and how an actor's performance can also be used to set the tone of a film and to help underline the theme. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think Raymond Burr's performance, both when he's being seen and not heard, and then when he's he's being heard and not seen because it's pitch black right. in the apartment, uh, it's very it's very uh, carefully uh, modulated, and it really really hit the film home for me. Uh, I mean, I already loved it, but in that I was like, oh man, I'm glad I saw this again. Glad you finally made up your mind. I was, yeah, I was on the <laughs> fence, and then all Ra- as always happens, Raymond Burr makes the difference. <laughs> Um, I saw, I'm sorry we're running out of time. We still have some TV to cover because I saw a movie that people have to see if they get a chance. It, it does not get, has not been very widely released. Um, luckily I had a, a, a screener. Um, it's called, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. Maidan. Okay. Uh, M-A-I-D-A-N. Okay. And it's the name of the central square in Kiev where the, in late 2013 and early 2014, the uh, protests for uh, independence and integration into the EU and stuff like that took mm-hmm. place, which turned, I don't know if you remember the coverage, but they turned very um, violent eventually. You mm-hmm. know, uh, a lot of people were killed um, <laughs> by authorities and the president ended up fleeing the country. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I don't think I knew that. But uh, this film, and I would love to talk to the director and find out what, how he envisioned the film from the beginning mm-hmm. because he started filming in Maidan, which was the it's like i said a central square but it turned during the protest it turned into a little sort of city of its own they built up blockades around the outside of it so then they were living in there and you know having uh you know food and aid workers and coming people people who it was sort of like an occupy wall street type thing i mm-hmm. guess but they were 
for months, uh, in, you know, the coldest months of the year in Ukraine, where it's probably pretty cold at yeah. that, that time of year. It gets uh, a, people, a bit chilly, I think. Yeah, people were, like, living there and protesting for months on end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just started filming, and he takes um, – his approach is to focus on the – uh, I think of it as a political film because it's literally focusing on the body politic, as it mm-hmm. were. There are no individuals. There's one part where a guy notices a camera and plays the, U- the Ukrainian national anthem mm-hmm. on the acoustic guitar in front of the camera. Uh, but that's his choice. The director does not focus on individuals at all. They're right. all wide shots. They almost never move. Um, they're just long shots <coughs> of people. And then as things get worse and worse, the tone of the of the aesthetic Mm -hmm. remains that same distant thing and it's with these sort of long lenses and this academy frame that almost makes it seem like like every frame is a different version i kept thinking of guernica picasso you know like this is like a moving guernica each each shot is its own um portrait of political unrest and and of people and community you know it's it doesn't focus on their ideas they come through because they're constantly making speeches and singing about them but it's not about the ideals. It's about the people behind the ideals mm-hmm. in a, in a sort of macro, uh, um, and somewhat distant, uh, but compassionate way. It's uh, amazing. The only, the, the camera only moves twice late in the film when he's up. Um, luckily the camera operator is not in the middle of when things get really violent, but he is sort of <coughs> panning over, um, an area of the part of a park uh, and violent. And you actually, I mean, it's, it's upsetting and it happens so quickly. You almost don't notice it, but you actually do see someone get shot by mm. the police. Um, it's pretty upsetting. Uh, and then the other time, which is earlier, the only time the camera moves is because the cameraman had to move somewhere else because they were being tear gassed. Like oh, you're yeah. seeing people coughing and all of a sudden you realize the cameras, like, like yeah. the smoke's getting too close. And for a few seconds, you're just looking at the ground while yeah. the cameraman runs to somewhere else and then sets up. And then you see someone else like trying to recover from tear gas and wiping yeah. their eyes. It's an amazing movie. Wow. Uh, I, I hope more people get a chance to see it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I also, um, speaking of movies of that feature demonstration of political unrest, I rewatched, uh, do the right thing. Yeah. Um, which is, I, I tweeted that it just gets better every time yeah. I watch it. It's, it's an amazing, amazing movie that I think I like, I like to revisit every once in a while because I like to see how I change. I think as, as a white man, it's hard for me not to identify with Danny Aiello. Sure. Um, and I think as I've gotten older and had more experiences, I'm able to, um, do, to identify with other characters more. Right. Because I remember the first time I saw do the right thing. The only part that, that was dissonant to me was when Danny Aiello loses at the end and says some really harsh things to Radio Rahim yeah. and, and bugging out. Um, and I was, and, and I, I think because I felt at the time when I was a, you know, suburban white kid who mm-hmm. didn't, who had never been to that kind of world where, you know, the idea of an inner city just seemed like, uh, I mean, I think I had some certain, you know, fantasies about it that were probably, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, glorifying some things like yeah. like teenagers do you know like oh i want to go live in like the lower east side of the 70s you, yeah. you know with uh 
you know, John Lurie and, and, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and those guys, um, when I probably really don't. Um, yeah. And there's it, a lot of like, hard shit going on there that I probably shouldn't be glorifying. It's like anybody but, who wears like, uh, has like the anarchy symbol. And right, like, right. You'd be the first one dead. <laughs> Come on. Um, so anyway, um, I, had a pro- I had a problem with that when I was younger because I felt like he's my only way in. How can he... Um, you know, as, as much as I agree that radio Rahim, like I know I get what he represents, but you're in a person's like business, maybe turn down the radio a little bit. Right. But Danny Ayla loses his temper. Yeah. Uh, Sal is his name. Yeah. Right. Um, and uses the N word in a way that not in the fact that he uses it at all, uh, upset me at the time. Now I'm able to not understand more, but I'm able to see more people's point of view that I see the movie. I think as my life experience grows, I see the movie more and more as a tapestry, which is what it is. Yeah. Um, but I have, as I have more experiences, I have more ways into the movie. And that's, I think why the movie keeps getting better to me. Yeah. I just, it, it's a like it is. It's yeah, I'm, I'm almost speechless when I talk about it because there's so much going on. You almost, it, it almost feels like, um, somehow kind of a miracle like how on earth well, were you able to to make a movie that so effectively expresses anger and but, for and and a certain sense of impotent rage like we don't nobody knows what to do here but here's the thing for so much of the movie it's a comedy yeah and that, that, that's what's really what it really struck me the other thing that struck me is how much i mean spike lee at the time was like this you know bold brash new voice and saying these things and in so many ways he is doing things that uh hadn't really been done before but aesthetically stylistically he's a classicist it could be straight out of the uh, studio you know film Mm -hmm. from the 40s or 50s or a douglas douglas cirque film the way that he the way that he moves the camera and 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 the way that he lights and colors things is uh uh, i love that I, i think it's it's easy when someone is a member of a minority and speaks on on behalf of the minorities to sort of pigeonhole them. So mm-hmm. that's what they are, you know? Spike Lee is a guy who uh represents um you know, angry the angry black voice. Um and I he certainly does represent that, but there's so much more to him. Oh yeah. And so much of him that is um just apart from the politics of it, a true student of cinema. And that's a big part of why his movies are so great. He, he's not just making a point. He's yeah. making, you know, cinema. And as much as I love Malcolm X and, um, I need to 20 and 25th hour. It's been a and, long time. Like I, I genuinely don't see, he could, he could ostensibly make the best movie of his career next year. Who knows? I don't see how he will ever, ever, top do the right thing like like i said it's a little miracle like i don't see how i the more i think about it's like i think that's maybe one of the like top 25 best movies of all time um and one that every that i think will always be relevant yeah um whether whether we want it to be or not um so okay uh i can move on to tv mostly because i've only watched one thing is it the last man on earth no, it isn't. I actually have not. I'm not caught up. Okay. Um, is it survive? Is it one? Is it something I watch? Is what I'm saying? It's something you've seen. Okay. Because I'm rewatching something. Okay. So let's save that for the end. I'm okay. going to tear through some TV. Glee managed to. I was all prepared for its two hour finale to either be in Glee fashion brilliant mm-hmm. or a complete train wreck. Yeah. And it managed to be just boring. Yeah. Uh, I was really disappointed 
that the Glee finale went so middle of the road. I mean, there were a couple of parts that, that got to me. I think if you invest six years of your life in a show, you're going to be a little primed for, yeah. for emotion. Uh, but it really just didn't, it didn't go for it. Uh, I've started to use the entire phrase who gives a shit as an adjective. <laughs> uh-huh. and, it's, and so it's like, oh, that movie was a little who gives a shit. Well, didn't uh, our friend Mike Schmidt has described things as a swing and a miss. Oh yeah. I love it. I like that. Um, last man on earth. It's just gonna be me being disappointed in things. I hope it can get back on course, mm. but it has. So much of the motivation has been about. I guess this is a spoiler for Last Man on Earth. He's not the Last Man on Earth. Yeah, there are at this point in the show two women. Yeah, Kristen Shaw. So he's the last man on Earth. Um, well, no. Okay, all right. <laughs> there have right. been new developments as well, but Kristen Shaw and January Jones and. Essentially, for three episodes in a row, the main joke has been uh, that he doesn't want to have sex with Kristen Shaw and he does want to have sex with January Jones. That's mm. kind of the only joke. And it has gotten – I'm really hoping because of the strength of the 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 talent of the people behind the show. Yeah. Um, that your, your Phil Lords and Chris Millers and – and Will Forte himself and Kristen Shaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know Jason Walliner directed one of the episodes. Some really talented people are behind it. I'm hoping it can get, now that there are more wrinkles to it, like yeah. I said, there are more people. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that it can get out of that funk, but I have been disappointed in it for the past couple weeks. That is unfortunate. Um, I, I hope Will Arnett can pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I almost forgot what that was in reference to. Okay. Uh, what else? Um, Broadchurch, Broad City uh, came to an end. Uh, you know, no sophomore slump for this show, which is yeah. I was so afraid of because it was. You mean the season came to an end, yes. not the series? Okay, the, the season came to an end, and therefore, like I was so. <clears throat> the first season was one of the best shows mm-hmm. that aired last year, and so I was as a pessimist. I was sort of ready for for a sophomore slump and uh it didn't happen it was great again um yeah. uh empire had a two-hour finale that i really dug it was um some really fantastic filmmaking uh it was a two it's a two-hour finale but it was only, it was two episodes so it was mario van peebles and debbie allen i think is her name who uh directed the second uh one mm. she's done a lot of tv i think uh some really lively direction in empire fashion it was just crammed full of plot yeah uh and all and some really great performances uh i I really dug it um children's hospital is back and it's okay okay uh and uh, i mean i feel like this is the sixth season premiere the children's hospital has had if this were the first one ever i'd be like what is this crazy show Mm -hmm. but children's hospital is so consistently crazy that the bar is a little higher so i was like yeah this is a crazy show yeah uh where everyone thinks that uh rob hubel and chris parnell look exactly alike <laughs> and it keeps causing confusion but that's like something you just take if on the show after you've watched children's hospital for five years if they tell you yeah these two characters everyone thinks they're identical okay yeah that's fine yeah <laughs> all right um and that's it for tv okay. for me uh yeah i so i spent the weekend in big bear with some friends and as I was driving around and as I went to, you know, a, a thrift store and bought a book for 11 cents, um, I just thought like, well, wow, what book? Um, Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Oh, I've heard that. I have not. Um, but I like Douglas Adams. But and that's so, the second one, right? I don't re- I don't even remember. I think you need to read Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency first. Do I? I guess you don't have to. But that's yeah. that's the first one and the better one. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and it, I hadn't read any of the Dirk Gently stuff, and I remember you telling me about it. So I thought, oh, let's give this a try. I thought it was 50 cents. Nope, 11. And, uh, <clears throat> and then at that, same, uh, at that same thrift store, my friend bought a uh, Dukakis 88 pin. So <laughs> just to give you a general idea of the community. And, uh, and as I was driving around in that heavily wooded area in this quaint little strange town, I thought, there's a specific kind of music I want to listen to. And so I pulled up on my iPad the Twin Peaks soundtrack Drove around and thought, this feels right, uh-huh. and it didn't go anywhere, and sure enough, uh, I have I felt a yearning to watch Twin Peaks again, so I have spent the last couple of days watching Twin Peaks while I work, because um, I've seen it before, a couple of times, um, yeah. but not for a while, and in watching it again, it's so great! <laughs> I love Twin Peaks so much. Are you into so the much. second season, though? Not yet. Okay. And I know that, and you know what, I've, I've seen the second season a couple of times at this point, and I know that, like... The forward momentum isn't there, but the tone still is, and like developing characters and relationships. So yeah, I'm and still characters on board that were with that. minor characters in the first season yeah. suddenly become um, really interesting. Who's the uh, the military guy? Um, oh, Major Don, Don Davis, Major Briggs, Major Briggs. Yeah, he's a great character, and well, he I gets like, some good stuff in the second season. Yeah, I love Don Davis, I lo- and I love that character. But it's just in watching it, man, such a wonderful command of tone. And as much as I like David Lynch, and I do. And I have no, and of course he's made some wonderful movies, but I don't think he, I think, I think his, I was talking earlier about Spike Lee and I think that do the right thing is the best thing he's ever done and maybe ever will do. I think Twin Peaks is the best thing David Lynch has ever done. Huh. I, I, I have been holding off. I have that same DVD set that you have, but I've been holding off cause I want to get the, the Blu-ray set. Yeah, I know me too. Um, and I have an Amazon gift card, and I'm pretty sure that's what I'm going to There you go. Using it on. All right. Uh, this has been fun. We have a guest waiting. Uh, thanks. Bye.